Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Every year in February, the New York Mets return to Clover Park in Port St. Lucie for their spring training camp. For the next month, locals can hear the bat crack and watch some of the fastest players in baseball. Port St. Lucie lies on the eastern coast, halfway between Miami and Orlando in Florida. On July 4th, 2011, it was sliding into summer with a temperature of 90 degrees. The city was celebrating Freedom Fest with live music and fireworks. But less than two weeks later, no one was thinking of lazy hot summer days, music, or fireworks. They were thrown into the national spotlight and would become known as a city with a teenage murderer. Blake and Mary Jo Hadley lived in Port St. Lucie for 24 years. It's where their sons Tyler and Ryan were born and raised. Blake was an engineer at the local nuclear power plant, and Mary Jo was an elementary school teacher. Growing up, their son Tyler was a Boy Scout, but when he was 10, he had a fight with his mother and afterwards told a friend that he would kill his parents. But no one thought much of it. Kids get mad at their parents, lash out, and vent their frustrations. Tyler was an awkward kid and was known to say things out loud to shock people. No one took him seriously. Time he reached his teens, there wasn't much to do in Port St. Lucie. Tyler, like many kids his age, acted out, perhaps out of boredom or the usual things teens do to push their boundaries. Tyler, along with a few other boys, poured gasoline on an abandoned sofa and lit it on fire. Tyler and the boys quickly got caught. The fire department was able to put out the fire and boys were lucky to get off with just a warning. As a young kid, Tyler had a mop blonde hair, but as he got older, his hair darkened much like his personality. By the time he was 16, he was thin and just over six feet tall. His face was distinctly angular with a long pointed chin, a chin he clearly got from his mother. His hair was cut short, forming a thin dark line across his forehead. His brow bones were pronounced, making his eyes appear dark and sunken. In 2011, Port St. Lucie had a population of just over 165,000, so not a big city, but not a small town either. Tyler Hadley was attending one of the 20 local high schools when he decided to murder his parents so he could throw a party. Ten weeks before the party, Tyler was at a friend's house when he got into a fight. He was arrested and charged with aggravated battery. But because Tyler already had a juvenile record, he was sentenced to jail for one week, followed by house arrest for another two weeks. His mother, Mary Jo, was outraged and took away his cell phone. That made Tyler very angry. Six weeks before the party, in early June, Tyler's older brother Ryan moved out of the house to attend college in North Carolina. Sometime soon after he moved out, Tyler began planning to murder his parents. 
Four weeks before the party, Tyler came home smashed after a night out with his friends. His mother Mary Jo was angry and used the Baker Act, which under Florida law allows parents to commit their children under the age of 18 to involuntary psychiatric treatment. She admitted Tyler to a mental health clinic where he was forced to attend counseling every day. Then two weeks before the party, Mary Joel told her friends that Tyler had improved and was back to being his normal self. But what she didn't know was that at the same time, he was at a friend's house and announced that he wanted to kill his parents and have a big party. Now it's a week before the party, and Tyler, his father and grandfather, traveled to Georgia to attend a family reunion. Everything seemed normal between Tyler and his family. The next week, on Friday night, Mary Jo and Blake enjoyed a family dinner out at a restaurant with their son Tyler. Everything seemed fine. An in-depth article by Rolling Stone magazine details the days leading up to the murder, and I quote, Tyler had been telling his friends all week that he was going to have a party, but nobody believed him. He'd never thrown a party before, and it was impossible to believe that his parents, who had been increasingly strict with him lately, would give their consent. When his friends asked whether the party was still on, Tyler replied, I'm working on it. They assumed that meant the party was off. The next day, Saturday, July 16th, was a warm sunny day in Port St. Lucie, Florida. At 11.25 in the morning, Tyler received a Facebook message from his friend Antonio Ramirez asking Tyler what's up. Tyler replied that he was trying to have a party at my crib. Antonio asked if his parents weren't home and Tyler replied, they're leaving soon. At 1.15 in the afternoon, Tyler posted a cryptic message on his Facebook wall. Party at my crib tonight. Maybe. Shortly before 5 o'clock, Tyler kicked his plan into high gear. He found his mother and his father's cell phones and he hid them. To give himself the courage to carry through with his evil plan, he put on some rap music and downed three ecstasy pills. He went outside to the garage, found a claw hammer, then returned to the house. His dad was in the master bedroom, his mother at the computer desk in the dining room. Tyler walked over and stood behind his mother. He stayed there, standing behind her for a full five minutes. It makes you wonder what was going through his mind. Was he trying to find the nerve to carry through with it? Was he thinking about the family dinner the night before? Or the family he spent time with at the reunion last weekend? Did he think about how their deaths would affect them? As reported in the Treasure Coast newspaper, Tyler had on a jacket, boots, and gloves. He raised the claw hammer and brought it down on the back of his mother's head. It didn't kill her instantly. She screamed out, why? Tyler continued to hit her with the claw hammer repeatedly, over and over on the back and the side of her head for another 35 times until his mother was dead. Tyler's dad, Blake, was a big man, over six feet tall and almost 300 pounds. Upon hearing the noise, he went into the dining room and seeing what was happening, asked Tyler, why are you doing this? Tyler answered, why not? 
Tyre then struck his father repeatedly, at least 65 times in the head, chest, arms, and legs, until he too was dead. Rolling Stones in depth report stated that when it was over, Tyler said he wrapped towels around his parents' head and dragged them to the master bedroom. Their bodies laid face down, side by side, the claw hammer covered in blood thrown on the floor between them. It took three hours to clean up all the blood and gore, much longer than Tyler had anticipated. He threw every piece of incriminating evidence he could find into the bedroom, burying their corpses beneath a two-foot-high pile of broken dishes, shattered glass, bloody towels, pillowcases, books, a coffee table, a sponge mop, Clorox wipes, and even a canister of coffee grounds. Then he walked out and locked the door. He took a shower and stared at his reflection in the bathroom mirror and laughed. At 8.15 that night, the party was on. Tyler posted another message. Party at my house. Hit me up. Within a few hours, about 60 kids had arrived at the house party. As happens a lot, most of them attending the party didn't even know Tyler. Word gets out there's a party and kids show up. In the beginning, Tyler was particular about how people behaved in the house. He didn't want anyone smoking inside but later changed his mind because he didn't want people outside annoying the neighbors. Rolling Stone magazine reported that a large crowd had gathered around the beer pong table in the dining room. The table was directly next to the family computer. The white keyboard was tacky with brownish dried liquid. Beer maybe? Or Coke? Nobody looked too closely. Now I know what you're all thinking, because it's what I'm thinking. It was covered in Tyler's mother's dried blood. People that knew Tyler and asked where his parents were started receiving different answers. Maybe it was from all the ecstasy, but he couldn't keep his lies straight. By midnight, there was a hundred people at the party. Some thought Tyler was acting weird. Others thought he was just being his usual strange self. The house was starting to show the wear and tear of a hundred teenagers partying. Things were getting messy with empty beer cans everywhere and cigarettes butted out on the carpet. Mark, a longtime friend of Tyler's, was leaving the party when Tyler asked to speak to him. He confessed to Mark that he did some things. He might go to prison, and he was freaking out. Then he confessed to killing somebody. Mark responded by saying it was none of his business, and he didn't want to know. Another guy at the party, named Ricardo, who had never met Tyler before, was leaving and thanked him for the beer. And he got a response he wasn't expecting. Tyler said he wanted to do something fun before he left, and when Ricardo asked him where he was going, he responded by saying he was going to kill himself, because I did something really bad. It seemed Tyler was coming to terms with what he'd done and what the consequences were going to be, but no one was really listening. They heard him, but no one believed him. Tyler was a strange person. He was always saying strange things. Around 1 a.m. Sunday morning, Tyler approached his childhood friend Michael and said he wanted to talk outside. They'd known each other since they were eight. They left the party and walked a ways down the street when Tyler confessed to Michael that he'd killed his parents. Michael didn't believe him. 
To prove he'd done it, Tyler pointed out his parents' vehicles were still in the driveway and took Michael to the garage, where he pointed to a bloody shoe print. Michael then went to the back patio, to the door that led to the master bedroom. He opened it slightly and could see what looked like a pile of stuff thrown all over. And at the bottom of the pile on the floor, he spotted a white leg. Michael ran from the room. But oddly enough, he did not leave the party right away. He even posed for a selfie with Tyler, a photo that would later be in all the media. Michael's head tipped up, lips pursed tight, and Tyler's head tipped down, looking dark and emotionless. Tyler was holding a red plastic cup as if about to make a toast. Michael left the party about 45 minutes later, but because Tyler said he was going to kill himself, he took Tyler's 10 Percocet pills and hid them. Around 2 a.m., people heard there was another party happening and started leaving Tyler's party, and they weren't quiet about it. Loud voices and noisy cars annoyed the neighbors to the point where one of them called the police. Within minutes, two police officers from the Port St. Lucie Police Department arrived. Tyler told the few people that were still left at the party to hide in his bedroom and stay quiet. The police talked to Tyler briefly and left. The party fired up again, although much quieter. Tyler got the lights turned down low when the blinds closed. The police affidavit posted at murderpedia.org states that at 4.32 a.m., police received anonymous call to his Crime Stoppers phone line. The anonymous caller stated that he had information regarding Tyler Hadley killing his parents with a hammer and provided the address of the house. Meanwhile, at 4.40 a.m., Tyler posted another Facebook message telling everyone, Party at my house again. Hit me up. Police returned to the house and could see Tyler through an opening in the blinds. He was pacing back and forth. The officers knocked on the door. Tyler did not open the door. Instead, he turned out the lights. Was he just hoping they'd go away? The officers requested backup, and police finally entered the house. They found their way to the master bedroom. They saw a blood-soaked towel. An officer removed two dining room chairs in order to enter the room and place them on top of the bed. As the officer removed the chair, he noticed the leg of a male covered in blood. It was cold to the touch. The officer called for emergency personnel. He then picked up a calendar that was on the floor and saw the arm of a second person, Tyler's mother. A search warrant was executed and police found Blake and Mary Jo's bodies lying side by side, face down with towels wrapped around their heads. When the towels were removed, wounds could be seen on the sides and backs of their heads. The claw hammer that had been tossed on the carpet between their bodies matched the symmetrical lines on the wounds pounded into their backs. A week after their vicious murders by the son they had loved, Blake and Mary Jo's funeral was held at the church that they'd regularly attended for the last 24 years, the St. Lucie Catholic Church. Blake was 54 and Mary Jo only 47. Almost a thousand people attended, including friends and family, co-workers, students, and their parents. Tyler didn't attend the funeral. He was in the St. Lucie jail, charged with two counts of second-degree murder. 
In September 2011, two major things happened. First, Tyler's older brother Ryan filed a lawsuit to stop Tyler from receiving any inheritance from the parents he'd murdered. In Florida, a person who intentionally and unlawfully kills another person is not entitled to benefit from their death. And second, the grand jury upgraded the charges to two counts of first-degree murder. Tyler claimed he was under the influence of drugs and pled not guilty by reason of insanity. But he would change his mind a few years later. On Valentine's Day, February 14, 2014, he signed a plea agreement and pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder with a weapon. He had already spent 949 days in prison. His guilty plea meant there wouldn't be a trial. The judge sentenced Tyler to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. But because Tyler was under the age of 18 when he committed the murders, he could not receive the death penalty. Tyler's sentence was appealed because the guidelines for sentencing juveniles had changed and his sentence was overturned. But in December 2018, as resentencing, a St. Lucie judge upheld Tyler's two life sentences. The house where Tyler killed his parents is gone. As reported by the Palm Beach Post in April 2014, a bank bought the property, demolished the house, and donated the land to the city. Although the house was emptied before it was torn down, the demolition crew found a love letter Mary Jo had written to her husband Blake in 1984. It was as if she sent a signal from their graves, reminding us all that their life began as a love story, and that is how they would like to be remembered. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Murderer Jeffrey Willis. First, a young mother disappears from work, never to be found. Then a young mother is murdered while jogging. When a teenager escapes her would-be killer, her bravery would lead police to a monster called Jeffrey Willis. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>